All right. Ready to go? All right, I'll eat I'm my ready. pretzels. I thought I'm you were ready. <clears throat> you nervous? All right. Welcome to another episode of The Mink and the Monk. I'm Matthew Fink. I'm eating pretzels. Yeah, eating pretzels. <laughs> That's Brad Monkel. And we are very honored and pleased to have the wonderful Mike Clark with us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> welcome to... Um, well, welcome to uh, Kerhunkson, which is where we are right now. Which is where we are, yeah. My my GPS was having trouble finding it. You had to hook me up on... Uh, uh, it's not, you know... It's not I, a common destination. Right. <laughs> that was an interesting drive last night, wasn't it? At first. <laughs> Sorry about the snow. God! It was like... <laughs> Albany got, like... Uh, were you in the snow last night? It was, night? like, not that bad. Like, I saw it, but on the roads, it was fine. Yeah. No, there was enough where it was actually a little slippery. Yeah, it was. I, I went down to 45 miles an hour for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, we got on the thruway together, and then I just, I, I checked in on you. Yes. Because I didn't see you in my rear view. Yeah, I was about three cars behind, and then I got behind some guy that was going 40, and there were so many trucks, mm. I couldn't pass him, and that's when you, I, could, I, I lost sight of you, and I thought, okay, well, I'm in the GPS, I know the address, so I'm cool. Yeah, we were, we just were. Just going to get there, yeah. I just wanted to make sure when I got to the exit that you were intact. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was glad I was intact yeah. because for a while it was tense, but then once it let up, man, we were off and running. You know, it was yeah. cool. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, where do we start? I just um, I've spent now about twenty four hours with you, <laughs> and um, haven't even seemed to come close to have run out of things to talk about. Uh, we covered a lot uh, last night, that yesterday, and then this morning. I think we picked up pretty much where we left off covered some more stuff so i think if you have something to start with brad we will defer to you because i'm i have plenty of questions but i feel like um i'm hogging it even though you weren't even here but i just feel like yeah well uh you know i uh I'm, i've been loving your podcast stick people mike uh, uh. i was just listening to the stanley clark interview recently um the john schofield one and uh you mentioned at the master class last night uh, that you had a sort of a podcast with Lenny White where you talked about movies. Did I have that right? Sort of a podcast, yeah. We have recorded a, a few of our reviews, if you will, on our cell phone and uh, and put them on Facebook or something like yeah. that. But everybody loved them. But we haven't, with COVID, our Siskel and Ebert careers came to a quick halt. Because uh, we've been going to movies together for many, many years. And so, in fact, he just called me yesterday, right before we played, and was suggesting some new movie that we go to when I get back. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this, you know. So, so, uh, so do you, are you really into doing that kind of thing, like talking for a show? Or like, have you had other like ventures in the past where like radio or trying to speak for people uh, or interview people? Well, I've done a heck of a lot of interviews in my life. Uh, so that's about the extent of, uh, uh, no, not really. Okay. I mean, lots of interviews, but not interviewing others. You know, like Stick People is my first probably interviewing other artists. Uh, it's my first time in this arena. It's and pretty I, awesome. It, you know, I, I love the guys, man. Uh, you know, Lenny and David and Michael and, and Greg. Uh, well, they're all great artists. Every one of them, man, has like uh, a serious track record and they uh, 
And now getting to know them, I see why. Yeah. Right, so you, you, so when you say Lenny, you mean Lenny White and then David Garibaldi. Yes. And uh, who else? Who's Michael this? Shreve and Greg Arico. And uh, Michael Shreve, you guys know from Santana, the great drummer. And also Greg Arico is the original brilliant drummer from Sly and the Family Stone. He's one of the guys that started all the, the broken up funk stuff. You know, wow, yeah, and you have a interview in the can with Larry Graham right now too. I don't think it's out yet. Right? It's not out yet. We it, have yes, and also with um, who's the guy? Oh my goodness, uh, Steve Jordan. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Steve. <laughs> it's kind of early for me. I, 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 uh, you know, the great drummer like that. I'm like, oh, Steve, what's his name? Oh, my goodness, uh, we're just playing with the Rolling, Rolling Stones yeah. right now. Sorry, Steve. I love you, bro. Um. I think those two are in the can, and we may, um, I think we got a couple others, uh, but I'm not, I can't recall, because during COVID, we did a lot of them, and they're not, and then we have to edit them, and this and that, you know. Yeah, the format's beautiful, the way you guys shoot it, I had watched the Schofield one, which was, I think, the (laughs) most recent, and you were saying that the cameras are different in the earlier or well you had everybody in one screen and i didn't see that i saw the schofield one where it was, the shot was each person asking the question and then just solely on whoever was speaking and i thought it was great just to, to hear you reminisce about a gig you you guys first met on the, the, however many years ago and uh, that's it's fascinating take uh, the five of you gents uh you have so much history oh, and, and you get to uh so it's a really interesting perspective well, David Garibaldi and I go way back to Oakland. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about that? Like, can we talk about Oakland for a minute? Sure. You were talking yesterday, yeah. and I don't know if that's where you were going with this. Did, were you, did you have another line you were going with? Okay. I can always come back to other stuff. Oh, okay. So you were talking about your upbringing yesterday, and um, I didn't know this. I didn't know you started playing f- four, four years old? I was four, yeah. And uh, when 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 we when I've spoken to other musicians about like usually every musician that's that's a great musician has gone through the shedding period and um, where you just uh, uh, where you kind of hole up in your in your in your space and 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 just work on what whatever it is your vision is and in that period seemed to be between the ages of four and seven for you is that what you were kind of well I've shedded from about four until. S- 19 or 20 okay but i started working young uh, as a child but then i started uh, in my high school years you know traveling and working um i could once especially once i got old enough to drive so i i wasn't able to uh i still shed it a lot but for the first 16 years I I locked my, pretty much locked myself in the drum room and did it. You so know, you finished school. Like, so you went to high yes. school or whatever. But you so before you were saying you, before school and after school. That's pretty much what you were doing. Oh yeah, and uh, once I started, I got a right out of high school. I got an offer to go up to Las Vegas and play with a lounge band that was making really good money wow. uh, for that time. Like right away. So I pretty much. Uh, I was going to go to this junior college. Uh, I'm not going to name the one, but the band was like really uh, the musicians. The kids weren't serious. They were uh, vandalizing the instruments, and, oh. and they didn't give it. They didn't care, and I did. And uh, I thought I don't want to be in this. Uh, and the band was awful. It was really awful, quite mm-hmm. awful. 
And uh, so I got this offer. Um, my mother was like, man, go get that money. Go ahead. And I did. And that was it. I never went back to school, uh, which at times I miss that I wish I had of in a way. But then I seemed to be doing okay. No, so, you know. That was school. But you were getting, you know, you were in school. Uh, I went to that school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you went to the, the That's actual, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so when I hear you talk about that and you talk about your dad, your dad, you said, worked at, uh, for the railroads and yes. you traveled around. Um, I'm always fascinated by, uh, we, I read and listen to a lot of musicians talk about their musical influences and, and time they spent with their heroes and all that. But I love to hear anything, like I love a, hear about family background and it seems like your dad was very supportive and it also sounds like your mom gave you some good advice uh that seemed like uh, an important uh starting place for you uh that they supported you in, in what you were doing it seemed like totally yeah i never they didn't ever question that i was going to be if you as a weird were a successful if you will drummer they just knew it was going to be work out okay for me and uh, they always supported me. I don't, I don't recall them ever saying, man, you should do something else. That never came up. They were really into it. And, mm. and, uh, and it was fun. You know, like a lot of guys my age at that time, a lot of kids my age when I was a kid, 13 to 16 or so, couldn't wait to get away, to get out of the house, just to get away from their parents, get away from the routine. But I was in there grooving. I mean, I, I went out and did all the stuff that the other guys did too, but I also, I could go into my room and submerge into my record collection, put my earphones on and play with any band I wanted to, you know. And they were cool with that. And you oh, playing were, drums at home and, and, yeah. and, and giving yeah. you good advice, go, go get that money. and, and yeah. yeah. They also, uh, at one place we had, uh, had a stepfather and he, uh, didn't like the drums drove him crazy so he built me a room out in the garage and it was a cool room what? and i could go out there and play i mean forever just like this room right here it was yeah. similar not as uh, extensive but i could just go in there and shut the door and blast play as loud or whatever i wanted and uh yeah when you got in here last night you were like oh i bet that can I try that ride symbol? And I was like, yeah, yeah go ahead. Have, 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 have. Yeah, that was late at night. I thought nobody ever tells me to. I, I'm like, oh, she, his wife won't be able to hear this? Really? Yeah, this I is great. She, she was out cold. Yeah, it was great to hear you play it because it, it, it certainly didn't sound like that when I played it. Uh, but it was great to hear you. Uh, it was just nice. You're like, a, uh, you have that. I imagine the same joy now that you did when you were four. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and I, I, every great musician I've ever spoke with always seems to have that that just joy when you can get on your instrument and just have some fun and like bring people together and, and play and feel good. It works like that, doesn't it? It sure does. You know, I <laughs> yeah. mean, you know, you're the same way. You pick up your guitar and you start and there you are. Yeah, and, man, and let's, let's have some fun. I really, that's like what it's always been about. And um, I never thought about like, as I was growing up or as I was getting older, I, I always was like, okay, maybe my point of view will change or I'll, you know, grow up. And um, yeah, that never happened. I still feel the, like the watching you come in last night and like, I don't know, we, we've been at it for 15 hours or yeah. whatever. And you're just like, oh, can I try the rides? And I was like, yeah, it's, I, I don't like, I, I know exactly. That's wonderful. Yeah, um, I hear you. I know just what you mean. I've been, it's like, uh, um, 
that fascination, that joy, that whatever it is that makes us do this, it's even increased since I was a kid. You know, I'll be walking down the street, and if I see a drum set or a cymbal in a shop, <laughs> I, I, always, I have to stop and just <laughs> ponder and look at it and think, hmm, you know. Uh, is that what I'm looking for? Yeah, maybe that's the one. <laughs> maybe that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah is, is there anyone that you look up to who, like, who kind of had that sort of attitude in a way that almost made it, like made you love appreciating music that way more? Well, Herbie Hancock, Tony Williams, all of them. Elvin. Um, uh, uh, I, I didn't know. Uh, I did a gig with Sonny Stitt, believe it or not, one time. And uh, when, he, you know, he, he didn't have much to say to us. He didn't know us, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was a little trio, and he just, Sonny Stitt's, gonna play and we're gonna back him up you know that was and uh <laughs> but when he and, and he was kind of you know he had a nice suit on he looked sharp new york kind of guy you know and he got up on the stage and when he started playing it levit like within the first four bars it levitated the room and, and this was one of those piano trios that was kind of like uh the piano player and the bass player were kind of subdued and quiet. They weren't like killer players. They were just regular guys. They played probably weddings and, and the little jazz gigs and this and that. And he turned it into like, within seconds, he turned it into like wolves running down a hill after meat. You know what I mean? It was ridiculous, man. You know, I was, the, and I'm like, so right after that, I thought, this is what New York is about. I got to move to New York. And I did. You know, that was the one that did it. I, I mean, I knew it was Sonny Stitt, so he could be anywhere in the universe and play like this. But I thought, yeah, I got to go to New York. I need to understand this. Mm. You know. <clears throat> do, you, do you feel like at home in New York anywhere, like more than anywhere else? Is there anywhere else you'd want to go to like kind of sit in the music scene and, and soak it up? Or do you just feel most comfortable spending your time I feel more comfortable in New York than anywhere I've ever been. Uh, I, <clears throat> like, uh, especially musically, it's like jazz Disneyland still, even after COVID. They're all, uh, uh, they're not all there. They're, you know, there's great musicians all over the world, but there's a lot of them in that one small area. <clears throat> so, you know, I can go here, oh, anybody I want to. And, uh, also, there's an intensity of the way guys play there, not just in Manhattan, but just on the East Coast. It's way different than the West Coast because I've lived in both, so I know the difference, you know. Yeah. And I was sort of built to play on the East Coast. When I lived on, even though I'm from the West Coast, I always kind of played the way I do now. And for some people, it was a little too much or too this or too that or too intense or too, uh, too loud or too, you know, too whatever, and and uh, when I moved to New York, I fit right in. It was like it wasn't anything special. It was just ordinary playing. That's how yeah. cats played. It was just regular. So I love being there. Also, you know, I love all my little restaurants, and I love, I I still I love New York. You know <laughs> what I mean? So I guess I love New York. That yeah yeah I'm yeah. comfortable there. Absolutely. Yeah. Shout out New York if you want to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and hire me to play drums if you, you know, <laughs> since I'm talking so nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that scene is a. Uh, uh, what's great about New York too is that there's 
there's small scenes within that whole scene where you can we were talking about this last night it turns out we played it uh, like i where he lives and where he played in the like in, in the harlem scene at like showman's we were we were talking about these lickety split last night wells uh and and a lot of these different sessions but it was interesting where you depending on what place you went it was different kind of music different kind of scene i mean it was all i guess what you would consider under the umbrella of jazz but there was different things happening within that whole scene. That's oh. what's, there's a lot of currents. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You could belong to many families of musicians in New York, and yeah. each one plays way different conceptually, let's say, than the other group, if yeah. you will. Yeah. You know? And so, um, you know, I got into a, a, I played with Julius Hemphill for a while, so I flirted with the being on the avant garde scene. And, uh, played with a lot of different uh i ended up playing a lot of different styles of jazz just by living there people mm -hmm. didn't know what i was about they knew me from the records but they didn't know and so they would just call i get these calls from you know it is you get calls from all over the place and you you want to be known and you want to be uh in new york so you you know you want to work so i ended up doing i played with tony bennett one time and uh just all kinds of a lot of um, organ stuff uptown and uh, post-bop and bebop and quiet trills and loud bashing. Uh, I played with Larry Coriel and uh, <laughs> I could go on and on, but yeah, it was really a, a diverse scene, man. Yeah, very different than the, the uh, you know, I don't know what's going on in LA. I can only, when I used to say the West Coast, I'm from the Bay Area, so I know that scene pretty well. There's great players there, of course. But uh, it's very different. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the people you've played with over the years, uh, you know, I know in Stick People in the in the Stanley Clark interview, I think Lenny White was saying, you know, he feels you as a drummer, you kind of develop like a certain trust with specific players, where you that like you feel the most comfortable playing with them. And I think he named like Ron Carter, Marcus Miller, uh, and Stanley Clark as like some of like the bassists he like trusted the most. Is there anyone for, for for you that's like that, like a bassist that you're always like at your most comfortable playing with? Well, there's not just bassists, but uh, um, uh, Gerald Cannon is a wonderful bandmate, uh, both on and off the stage. He's a great cat. He swings really hard. Essiet Essiet, also one of my favorites. Um, Eddie Henderson, I'm completely comfortable with playing. Donald Harrison, I'm very comfortable with playing with him. Um, uh Jack Wilkins, the great guitar player, I can play with him and not even know what tune we're playing, and it's not a problem. I just know, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know he's playing so well that it, I can just, it's nor, it's, it's uh, natural for me, you know. And um, uh, Jerry Z on organ, I, uh, um, and I've also got good at <clears throat> fitting in. Like last night, I didn't know the players that we were playing with. I know Matt, of course. And I'd played once before with the bassist, but I and I just um, I didn't feel like I was I was comfortable with everybody up there. I didn't feel like I was an outsider, or I have to really stress to learn all of these different great artists and where they're coming from. I could just play with them. You were you even know? comfortable with the way Brad was staring at you from the audience. You were okay with that? <laughs> that bothered me. <laughs> Uh, um, and actually marred my particular performance 
But yes, it was uh, uh, psychologically. I'm going to probably have to see a shrink for about a year to overcome that. But well, now other than Eddie Henderson, you can go see Eddie. He can help. You. Yeah. Well, yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, keep going. If you can make me cry, that'll probably get a lot of views. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying. You know, like yeah, let's get to some emotion, raw. You know. <laughs> um. Well, uh, you know, so. To continue on with the like the talk of players who uh, who you have like a great rapport with, um, you know my favorite bassist of all time is the late great Paul Jackson, and I I would really love to hear a bit about uh, one of my favorite records of all time, The Funk Stops Here. Mm. If I could hear about the background that led up to that album coming together, uh, that wasn't really me. That was I lied about that record. Uh, that uh, that was some other guys that Paul and I played, paid, and and, uh, and we just drank beer and hung out and, and uh, produced. Let's hear it. about that then. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, uh, okay. So Let's Jim Payne, the great drummer Jim Payne, called me and said, "I want to do a record with you. You can play anything you want. You can play any way you want, but it's got to be funky." That's what just exactly what he said. And I said, "Okay, I knew who to call right now." Uh, we got to call PJ, and uh, he's and fly him over from Japan. Oh, was he living in Japan? He, since the seventies, he, wow. he he passed away there. He, he all the way up until he he passed away. Um. So, and then I had been playing a little bit in people's front rooms with Kenny Garrett. He mm. wasn't Kenny Garrett yet. He sure was on that record, though. Well, oh yeah, he you know, oh he was always <laughs> he was, that. Yeah, he was, but when I met, yeah, musically he was Kenny Garrett, but he hadn't uh, his career hadn't taken off yeah. like that yet. It was just starting to. But I, when he first got there from Detroit, we did some playing together, and you know, like in jam sessions in guys' houses, and I can't remember a couple of little gigs at Seventh Avenue South, I think. So. I know Kenny can really get funky and and go and go anywhere. So I'm like, call. Let's call Kenny Garrett. And then my friend uh, from California, Jeff Pitson, and I had a, a lot of. We logged in a lot of time playing, and I knew what he could do. And he had some uh, special ideas for the sound of this record and stuff like that. And we discussed it and I said, okay, so you got let's get Jeff. So we flew him out. Now this part's gonna kill you. This is what makes it so good. Jim Payne had a house in the swamp in some little town in Florida. I don't even know the name, but when mm. I say in the swamp, I don't mean like close by, I mean in the swamp. <laughs> and you could go out on his deck and there's a boat there, a rowboat. And uh, you can, and when you start rowing, you have, if you go under a tree, you got to watch for snakes. There's gators. gators. I mean, we're yeah. in. This is not. This isn't. Uh, leave it to Beaver time. This is like the jungle. And then he's got a house out back. And I have. I lived in Texas, and I was terrorized by scorpions and spiders as a child. So I'm deathly afraid of a, even a nice little friendly spider. I'm not deathly afraid, but you know. I'll probably step, I don't want to kill things, but you know, I just got to get out of the room. It's, you know, I have PTSD. And uh, so they had these big, huge banana tarantulas that were not poisonous, but there were hundreds of them. 
and they lived in this shack that, and it was nicely, a, a nice little small house behind Jim Payne's house. So there was another little cottage. That's the word I'm looking for. And and uh, it, so he, I I wanted I'm a Buddhist and I chant, so I didn't want to drive everybody crazy. kill, you know. I so I'll stay out in the shack or the shed or the whatever your cottage. So I get out there. Everything is cool. It's kind of nice. Uh, um, I'm alone. I, I don't have to be with the band all the time, which I love being with the band, but I like being alone too. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I shut the light off to go to sleep and I and I hear, blah, 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 I hear this uh, running feet just like that. Bam, the light's back on. What the hell is that? It's something on the roof. I got to... You know, I got to get Jim. What's going on here? And I look up on the ceiling, and there's 10 or 12 of these tarantulas walking upside down. That's their feet hitting the, the which is their floor and my ceiling. And they're all over the place. And I was going to go, and I'm bugging out, literally, literally. Yeah, if you, if you will. And, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm going to, go in the house and sleep on the floor i'm not i can't do this man it's crazy I, you know this is, i'll be exhausted for the recording date tomorrow and um but then i thought hey wait a minute these things aren't poisonous i'm going to try to overcome this right now so i shut the light off and tried to go back to sleep and i did and i woke up the next morning in the daytime there maybe you'd see a little antenna sticking out of the wall where there was a there, it needed a paint job, and there were some holes in the wall of this little car. And then I took a shower that morning, and I'm in the shower, and I'm like, pretty good. I got six, seven hours sleep. I'm ready to play. It's not so bad. Nothing bit me, I don't think, uh, you know. And when I'm taking a shower, there's a little crack, like it's like a haunted house, little, you know, old boards. You can look right into the wall. And there was like a foot of some insect hanging out, and it was moving. The foot was moving. And I'm thought, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to ignore this. Finish taking a shot. So I lived out there for a week with those, oh my goodness, monsters. And <laughs> and then Paul, uh, something happened where Paul needed a hotel room. Who knows what that's all about? But we got him a hotel room in town near the studio. He probably was afraid of the spiders, man. <laughs> huh? He probably was afraid of the spiders. He may have been. <laughs> I have the heebie-jeebies just here. Yeah, well, well, he he used to, he made this incredible chili. Paul can really cook. And he had this gigantic vat of chili because there was a, in his room at this hotel was a kitchenette. And then his bed was elevated uh off the floor so the bed was kind of higher than the rest of the room and he's waiting for the chili we're all waiting for the chili too and we're talking about what we're going to record the next day this and that and all of a sudden paul's reading paul's famous for being rude and you're in a conversation and he just starts reading a book and all of a sudden, and it's always Road and Track magazine. He's a car nut. So he's all of, we're all talking. And then next thing you know, there he is. He's reading again. And he's a big, big guy. He's 6'4 and 200 and something. You know, he's a big man. So he's got really long arms. And he's reading. And 
we see that there's a tarantula crawling across his ceiling, and now it's right above his head, and he seems to not see it because he's reading. And we're being real quiet because we're waiting to see how this plays out. See, And then in one fast move, he flicks his arm up to the ceiling with this book and and kills the tarantula on the ceiling because the bed was high enough that he could reach it. And there's this big crash and then this spot on the ceiling of what once was alive. And we're just like... He just knew it was there. He wasn't even peeking. Well, he was messing with us. Uh. He was acting like he didn't know it was there. And then he, we were kind of... He could see that we got real quiet. So we're waiting, you know, and then he, he pulls that move. It's a kind, this dude had like a very bizarre sense of humor, you know? Like, and anyway... I guess I sort of got going on that one there. But the whole thing was in the studio, although it was outside of the swamp, it was like sort of a wooded area, you know? And um, and there was a soul food place that was close by. So we would go down there and just like tee off, uh, like in between, like if we took an hour break, we'd go down there and get ribs and chicken and smother it in hot sauce. and. Mm. Oh, it was a potato salad and, you know, the whole nine, you know. And uh, so <clears throat> we were in this environment that was so disconnected from New York and wherever the rest of the guys lived. I guess Jeff lived in San Francisco, Paul in Japan. Garrett was in Brooklyn. And um, so we're in this prehistoric environment. So I think that helped. The, oh, and the atmosphere in the studio, the air itself was very kind of dank and not st- not stankin' dank, just kind of thick, and you could feel it. Stankin' and it, dank was another restaurant in the area. Yeah, yeah, stankin' dank. <laughs> well, it was, it was a takeout, stankin' dank takeout. <laughs> so you know, and, and uh, a delivery. Yeah, they did quite successful. Yeah. The, the stank family yeah. actually owned the the franchise. Yeah. Dank. Yeah, Dank married in. Yeah, he had a tough <laughs> yeah. life, but he got in. He did okay. He did finally, okay. yeah, yeah. But um, um. So that's, you know, so it was like a prehistoric experience, period. Okay, I'm done. Thanks. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. I mean, that album, I, I, it's a joyous album. I didn't, that's where I realized that Paul is an astounding singer. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard his album Black Octopus? Oh, yeah. My God. Oh, no. no. That, it's, it's like, I think it was released in japan originally it's kind of it it's kind of hard to find here but yeah. his singing there's, there's like i love some of the t- the tunes he has on wow, there just I'll, like I'll, compositionally I'll but his performance today. on it is is so great well now some of those tunes were written in the car with both of us but my name didn't show up on any of that for black octopus uh, for yeah. yeah for yeah uh, um i'd have to see the tunes again and be refreshed but some of that stuff we had so many little bands and trios and this and that. We'd put music together. And uh, um, so some of those things, um, we didn't officially co-wrote, but we sang the parts to each other and made up lyrics together. And, you know, really, we, yeah, we were like buds, you know. But somehow I got left behind on that one, you know, <laughs> which was another kind of Paul Jackson kind of story that you know he would, but he would make up for it in different ways. Like one time, Fred Wesley told me that he would not see his name on things that he wrote for James Brown. He'd see James Brown's name on it, 
But then later, something that James Brown wrote, Fred's name would be on it. So he had a way of, Paul was like this. He would do things that you'd be like, wait a minute, you can't be doing that, bro. And then later on, he'd cool you out, he'd make up for it. So after a while, I got used to that rhythm, and I was cool with Paul. I'm like, okay, he'll, it'll come, you know. And and on top of that, we we're best buds forever. Right till the he called me the night before he died. I talked to him about five hours before he died, and he said, I, he let me know this is it, baby. So if there's anything you want to tell me. You better tell me now. And I'm like, yeah, well, first of all, you're a punk. I want you to know that. You know, and he's like, oh, man, I still can whip your butt. You know, and, and we just got into it, man. And then we had this very deep, beautiful conversation. Next morning, his wife called me. She said, he's gone. <clears throat> you know, it, it was like, I'm still blown out. Uh, that's one of those, I'm not going to get over until I'm gone. Uh, you yeah. know. I mean, I'm not sad and broken up. I'm having a fun and having a good time. But when I, I pray for him every single day, for his whatever's left of him, if there is anything like that, I'm praying for it, you know, well, sending him energy. Well, seriously, my, I, you know, it's been a while, but my condolences over that. I mean, I, I feel bad bringing it up because, you know, I'm sure it's a sore spot, but the music that you made with him, like you two are my favorite funkiest rhythm section together and like i you know i can tell how profound of a relationship you do oh man i yeah i I love thank you all like the work that you two have done together you know we were we did a lot of crazy stuff that was non-musical too oh let's like we we shared a (laughs) we shared a uh a huge house that was the epicenter for our girlfriends hanging out drinking also we had a big music room and so years of music was played in there and all those things that we did with herbie we did way before we met herbie we had we'd been doing that for a while we've we he played upright bass acoustic that was his thing and trombone and and he and he wrote and he sang and he played uh, uh oboe uh and bassoon and uh and uh, he had classical training all kinds of stuff and then the church thing he was like way into that and his father and mother played in, uh, uh, piano and sang in church, led the bands. <clears throat> and so uh, an amazing natural musician that could just like, uh, we didn't even have to name the tune or count anything off. We could actually just start playing and come up with a whole orchestrated deal. You know, we had that kind of a friendship where it was just organic and it went like that, you know. Um that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. He'd give me a car, you know. Just give you? Like, He'd just give me a car. One day he had this Ford with a 390 engine and a stick shift, and he knew I liked it. He said, hey, it's yours. Take it. I'm like, I don't want your car. He's like, yeah, no, it's your car. I'm going to leave it here anyway. It's your car. Drive it or don't drive it. Here's the keys. I drove it for two years. And, uh, what? yeah. <laughs> You know, what are you going to do with a guy like that, man? He gives you a car. What? You drive his car. I drove it, man, to death. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. He was making up for some tunes he took from you. Probably. <laughs> he must have been some, now that I think about it, I'd like to know what he did that <laughs> warranted him giving me a car now that you mentioned What was he equalizing? Yeah, maybe I better change that prayer a little bit, you know. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, that's that's incredible. It's apparent on 
everything you guys that that's on that's on uh vinyl that you can hear there's it's a love affair you know you guys, yeah you know, we loved uh, each other he's my brother you know yeah. like yeah and his family uh treated me like family from day one and vice versa you know um so uh we didn't even have to speak about stuff it was so deep we could be in a room full of people and nothing needed to be said with him and i and there was there was something being understood by both of us that we're you know it was yeah. weird you know <laughs> it was amazing yeah yeah um now you're both buddhists correct you and uh paul yeah mm -hmm. um now you told a great story about your uh chanting and practice of buddhism last night at the uh master class so this might i don't know if this is a appropriate example feel free to retell the story for the listeners but i did want to ask um when you were first getting into buddhism when was the first time you really felt the the results of chanting that really made you start to like believe in it in a, in a more out there way rather than just in like maybe you enjoyed it but like what where did it start to become really profound for you yeah, was there some kind of actual proof <laughs> um <clears throat> yes as a matter of fact um is that uh, the story i mean oh uh, no okay. but it's the beginning here's what happened uh paul was playing with little anthony and the imperials up at lake tahoe and he had met herbie hancock and herbie turned him on to chanting so I used to go to Catholic school. My mother's Italian, so naturally, uh, I ended up in Catholic school. So, and then, of course, uh, as soon as I got out of Catholic school, I never went to church. Well, yeah, I did a couple of times here and there, but I blew it off and just lived my life. I didn't think much about it. And, um, but I consider myself a Catholic at this point, even though I didn't practice anything, nothing. I practiced smoking weed <laughs> and uh, abundant box cars of weed. Weed of Christ. <laughs> yes, the weed of Christ. As a matter of fact, the sacred weed. Rastafarian Catholic. Yeah. Oh boy. So uh, um, so anyway, um, he comes into the house that we were sharing. Just got back off the road, and I hear him in his room chanting some kind of words, which was Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, but I didn't know what that was. So the first thing I said to him was like, hey man, don't do that, something bad's gonna happen. You know, my whole Catholic thing came out, even though I hadn't been to church in 25 years or whatever. So um, then he, his exact words were like, hey man, Herbie Hancock just uh, told me about this and, and and uh, if you chant Nam Yoho Ren Gekyo, you can have all of your dreams fulfilled. So my next sentence was, write it down. <laughs> First I was telling him, don't do that in the house. And then as soon as he told me that, I'm like, write it down so I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I started chanting on my own based on that because I, first of all, wanted to prove him wrong. <laughs> You know, a great reason to do it. Yeah, I'm going to prove that this does not work. And so I thought, not only that, I'm going to chant for some stuff that's 
outrageous. So my first prayer, if you want to call it that, of chanting was to <clears throat> get a job with Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock. Now, I'm, I'm this guy that not many people know that lives in the middle of Oakland. How the hell are they going to find me? But if this is all they say it is, then I'm going for it. But what I did notice is I chanted maybe a half hour a day, and I, I did it. I, uh, and, uh, and Paul was the jive chanter. He would chant when Herbie would come around and act like he'd been chanting, but he was BSing. <laughs> but I'm the one that got rolling. But Paul chanted too, but I, I really got going. So I didn't know anything about it. I didn't want to study anything. It's either, it, either going to work or it's not. So I went to the gig that night, and I noticed I could read music at a level that I'm not able to read music at. I could see what was going on on the page, and I could anticipate and set things up. So I was way more focused than I'd ever been. It was like I drank the best coffee, and it just jacked me into another level of, of thinking. I was sharp as I was sharper than the whole band. The reason it's not egotistical, but I know these guys forever. I grew up with these guys, so I know what's going on. And I was, and uh, and I was really, and, and everybody noticed that they like. Did you take some kind of a? You know, this is the late sixties. Did you? <laughs> Snort? I don't know. Some questions Snort like this. Your way to paradise. Did you <laughs> take? Is there? What's going on? And I said, Well, I chanted hey, give this. Give me some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I did. I said, Well, Paul told me this, and here's what I did. And so then I wasn't sure that the chanting really made me. That could have been a chemical blood sugar thing. Who knows? I was just in a. I've been in those places where I could play better than I normally can. So I did it the next day, and every gig, I seemed to be not self-conscious about my playing. I was totally in the moment. I was just, and it was as if I was going into a dream and playing this music, and then I wasn't thinking anything until the music was over. I was free. The caged bird was able to sing. Then I made my commitment to doing this. I said, well, whether I get Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock, this is worth the price of tea in China right here. I, this is an amazing um, uh, experience. I'm I'm high without taking anything, but I'm not stoned. I'm focused as hair as I've never been that focused. I was like, wow. And then um, the next thing you know, Paul gets the gig with Herbie Hancock. So that was close enough for me. So maybe his chanting wasn't so jive after all. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah, no, and 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 uh, uh, yeah, probably he had a deeper. He didn't have to do as much as I did, you know, and and uh, that showed me there's something going on here. I, I don't even care if I got the gig. Paul did. I'm like, wow. Plus, there, I find out that they're going to play funk. So I'm, I'm, I had a really good jazz career in the Bay Area playing acoustic straight ahead jazz, which is my passion. I don't care about no funk. So uh, um, I'm like, well, probably better I didn't get the gig because I'm doing really good. Now I'm this focused young guy that's playing all over the place. I'm like, this is cool. And then before you know it, before a month or so went by, I got the gig with Herbie Hancock. So I'm like, wait a minute, you know? And Herbie chants 
he really practices and studies and does, you know. And so then he started explaining to me how this thing works. Like the reason I was able to achieve goals through chanting is because I changed the reason internally that I didn't have it in the first place. And that's the hook. It's not magic. You got to change some stuff, you know. And that way it's also liberating because uh, you're the guy in control. Nobody did anything to you. Nobody's faulted. It's you. It's not a fault, and it's not a less than or a more than. It's you that's got to get it done. And you have to make the causes. It's based on cause and effect. So that's it. And I just kept going until right now. I'm still chanting. You know. Do you, do you still have moments where you feel like, are you still chanting for very specific things and seeing it kind of yield in in how you're going about your life now yeah i'm chanting uh for very yeah the you're according to the practice it's better for you to chant for specific things that way you see the actual proof and you know that it's not an accident or and after a million jillion great opportunities and actual proof uh then you realize it, it is the chanting that's doing this to me, but you're doing the work inside. It's not like going to Vegas and you're pulling the handle and, and you know, it's like and you hit the jackpot. You got to change some stuff internally that's blocking you from your goal. And this allows you to see it because it makes you uncomfortable with the parts of your inner world that are not healthy and you get to peep it real good, and that way you can change it. So there's no really pushing it down or denying it or turning your head the other way or pretending it's not there. The negative parts are right. The good parts are enhanced, and the parts that are not cool are, are you get, they're brought to the surface kind of, so you can't really deny, and then you have to deal with it. And it's not, it's, it can be a little painful or a little rough, but it's not, but it's doable. I'm doing it. It's called the human revolution. That's what they call it in Buddhism. You, you're, you're, m- most people think you're, well, that's the way he is. And up until that point, he is. But once you start chanting, all this other stuff comes out. Great stuff uh, that's sitting down in there. Hmm. So you can access, uh, and it gives you the strength and the courage to face the stuff about yourself that's uncool. You know, yeah. So, so that's can good. you help Brett the whole ginger thing with Brad? Can you help him? <laughs> well, you know, even in Buddhism, there are limits. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, to, to as what can happen. And, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you yeah, were gonna cry yeah, today. I didn't mean for you to. Sorry, you know, like, no, yeah, like, no, no, it's so cool. To, it's so cool to hear about the story you told last night about recording actual proof was so cool. I'm assuming you've told that on a bunch of interviews. Before. I sure have. I'm yeah. sure a lot of these stories you, yeah. you've told a lot, and I, I. Well, this last one not so much, but the actual proof story I've. It's almost painful to keep telling it. Yeah, you, you know, know what exactly. I mean? Like, That's why I didn't go straight to that. Well, one. I'm going to tell it now, though. I feel like I feel it. No, no, no. no. <laughs> hey, actually, would, this would be great to keep this all about. You're you're just with with Paul. Like anything having like the like what I really dig uh, that I like to hear people talk about when it's this evident that, that like and I always just use the term love affair. Like you guys truly, yeah. Y- you just it's a thing. So. um 
anything having to do with that with experiences like it just sounds like you're reading each other and you're not trying to at all mm-hmm. you, there was zero work with understanding yeah, there's zero work it was a natch from day one the uh, i was doing this gig i had a organ trio for ever it seemed like it was my gig and i and uh um I was in my really early 20s. It was an organ trio. And uh, we were playing in this uh, shopping center. I think it was Concord, California. And um, five-night-a-week jazz gig. It was great. And um, so this guy walks in and sits down. And he's staring and watching everything I do. So I think he's a drummer. He's making me nervous. He won't stop watching me. And I'm like, oh, great. And and uh, I'm trying not to be self-conscious, you know, and I'm thinking, I got to play the gig. I, and so, I, and, 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 uh, so on the break, I walked right over to his table and I said, I'm sure you're a musician, I can tell. And uh, um, what do you play? And he goes, I'm a bassist. Oh, really? And he says, I also play B3. And I'm like, oh, man, what's your name? Paul Jackson. And my name's all on a big sign in the club, you know, the Mike Clark trio. And and uh, uh, and we had a, I said, well, come, come on up and play on the next break if you'd like. And he's like, okay. Now, there was a Sherman and Clay, which is a music store chain that was in California, it was upstairs in this mall, and he heard us playing. And on his, when he got done, he came downstairs, and he managed this music store. So he came up and played the B three, and man, and there was a microphone there, so he sang as well. I didn't even know he sang. I didn't even know him. <laughs> and man, all hell broke loose. I mean, he's not a great organist, but the. The parts of Jimmy Smith that in re- the blues that really tickle your funny funny bone, though he only has four or five of those and he uses them all the way through everything. So he's knocking my lights out and the groove is so heavy. We played a shuffle and it was a whopper and the whole joint is snapping their fingers and bobbing their people are moving and pretty soon he starts, you know, uh, what's the matter now, Mama? Don't you need a man like me? <laughs> you know, and he makes up the lyrics. You can tell it's all BS. I seen you downtown. You was looking funny. She say, not now, pretty daddy, not unless you need some money. You know, and he's just coming up with one after the other. And I'm loving, I'm going like, oh, I just died and went to heaven. What's going on here? This is for a drummer. It's no, it can't get no better than this. And then he solos. And of course, I can see that he's not really an organist, but somehow he's soloing his butt off, man, you know. And the guitar player with this is loving. He's like, wow. That was, a, so it was a, experience you know mm. more than just played and, and he played one tune and then left the stage and we we're like in shock <laughs> he just took the whole place over you know he's just god and larger than life type of guy so um i had given him my card oh and then he leaves the club you know it's like jesse james come in shot the place up and then saunters <laughs> out the door and i'm like this cat i i knew i was gonna see him again and I had his card, I knew where he worked, and he had my card. So I'm like, okay, I'm not done with that guy yet, you know. 
And uh, that night I get home uh, to my house in Oakland, and there's a car I don't recognize in my driveway. I'm like, what? What the heck is that? You know? So I get out. So I can't even park in my own driveway. This is how it starts. <laughs> and, and and I got my drums and all my stuff. So I, I'm unloading, and I'm eyeballing this car, and I'm like, what's going to go down here? And <clears throat> he gets out of the car, and it's it's the guy from the club. It's Paul. And he says, hey, man, what's up? I'm like, you're, the first thing I said to him was, you're in my driveway. And he goes like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and, and then he had some African hashish with him, which I didn't know, but he told me. He said, I got some hash here and a jug of wine. So I was like, well, come on in then. <laughs> so Leave your car. It's fine. So I'll that was the beginning street. of it. He came in, and, and the next morning, 6 a.m., we're still talking at the table. My wife gets up to go to work. She's like, who the hell is that guy? What are you doing up all night? And I'm like, oh, man, we're talking about everything. And and then she really liked him. And Oh, and then he cooked her a fantastic breakfast. And uh, so she really dug him then. She's like, okay, this guy's cool. And... Uh, and then we hung out every day together for 30 years after that, you know, like that's, so that's the story. All kinds of, we booked jillions and millions of gigs, organ trios, upright bass, piano, uh, uh, jazz trios, this funk gigs, this, that, the other. We infiltrated about 10 bands with our crazy rhythms and everybody liked us and it was on. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, it is yeah. a great story. I love it, man. Yeah, man. I love it. It's it, it it feels like that when you when you listen to it. Yeah. You know, none of that surprises me, but I love hearing it. Yeah. I think I just relived it on the reel right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, like, your eyes are lit up. You're laughing. Look at your <laughs> smile. I mean, that's that's a that's like that's the human thing that like that. I, I just love it. And even the, the the way you two are staring at each other on the record cover is oh. Is hilarious, and it's evident how tall he is. I didn't put oh, that he's together. A oh my God, he's <laughs> a monster! He's a monster, man. He's like gigantic. You know? You know, he like, just so he stalked you and found out where you lived and just drove yeah, there. Yeah, well, he had my card, so I guess my address was on it. And he yeah. went right there and waited me out. Yeah, you know that's why we do this. I came out one morning. Brad's in my driveway, just staring into my. I window. heard about <laughs> it. Yeah, you called the cops, though, didn't you? At first, uh, he was hauled off, and then you went and bailed him out because you realized. You yeah, we heard about it. <laughs> Might as well do this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I wasn't as smooth. I didn't have African hashish. I had fentanyl and absinthe. Well, I made him Captain Crunch for breakfast. Yeah, well, there you go. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a fentanyl little... and absinthe. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, uh, there's nothing wrong with that Captain at all. It's Crunch. just a different, yeah, Captain Crunch. I actually like Captain Crunch. Nothing not to like about Captain I'm Crunch. I'm saying, yeah, you know, religion. like. But which kind of Captain Crunch? Well, Here we go. No, I'm not a Captain Crunch expert, but I've had a couple of bowls, and I really liked them, so I'm not sure the, uh, of the, uh, it's like, was it a 20-inch ride symbol or an 18 crap? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to tell you right now, it's, it's I, I love them all. But peanut butter. Oh, um, I'm thinking just, berry, Matt. I, I, I love the berry too. I love both of those. But peanut butter, I, I like. I eat sometimes. I need a late night snack, and I'll wake my wife up chewing that because it's crunchy, man. It is so. It is peanut so, butter is addictive. Peanut butter, it's having crunch. I, and you got to have the milk right because it won't get soggy. But you got to have the milk right. But if you, you keep it a little dry, you can wake up neighbors chewing it. 
Well, I'm trying not to have a stroke at this age, but I used to just always have crunchy, not Captain Crunch, but crunchy peanut butter in the oh, icebox. Yeah. And I would come home after a gig trying to not eat too much meat, trying to have my veggies and this, that. And I'd take a gigantic three huge spoons full of peanut butter and just slap that on my tongue and just let it roll. Down. And, I, you know, I wake up in the morning hungover from the peanut. <laughs> I'd be like, what did I do? My mouth is all salty and dry. Oh, my God, I did the peanut butter again. <laughs> Finally, she forbid. My wife's like, no more <laughs> peanut butter in the house. You're not to be trusted. It's true. I can't. Oh, my God. Next album name, Peanut Butter Bender. <laughs> the dog is just staring at you while you're sleeping there. You have dog peanut likes peanut butter, <laughs> yeah, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. Wake up to him kissing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll wake you up. Um, well, you know, Matt, if, it, if it's so loud when you chew it, you should just eat your cereal in this room. This, isn't that why you have this? It, it's part of the reason why I have it. But I have this thing where, like, if I don't, have I like if I'm just if I don't have any more discipline at the end of the day I, I need I like I like a snack before bed I, it's it's not a great thing to do for all the obvious reasons I that, do too I, yeah and I like like so Mike and I were hanging last night and um you saw the table when we came in so we had <laughs> we had what four, four different bags of Lay's oh, not Lay's they were a kettle kettle just shout out kettle sour cream kettle, sour cream and onion kettle chips uh, a lathe one and then there was the black pep crack pepper one and then i bought a bag of chocolate covered uh pretzels, pretzels. And, and then uh a six pack of heineken and in pizza we ate the leftover pizza oh yeah we ate the pizza <laughs> my god you're right about that so that was that wasn't the best midnight snack that was a smorgasbord no i slept so good <laughs> i was like kablamo well that was funny you were talking with the same amount of energy and excitement just like this all day and then last night about it was 12, one o'clock you just look at me like yeah i'm done bro <laughs> <laughs> and we literally were asleep yes. at one fifteen, and uh, I didn't ha I didn't see any peanut butter tracks across the no, kitchen this morning, so I don't think to. you got up. No, but that was so funny because you you don't like fade, like some cats just start like they start hunching and they're they're nodding. You were like just like this, and you're like wide eyed, telling me you're done. I was like, yeah, me too. And we went to bed, and that was it. We got back up this morning, and we're at the same. We're doing the same exact thing. Right, got the coffee on and. And got to it, you know. <laughs> Getting yeah. to it, yeah. Yeah, sounds like a fun time. I wish I lived closer. And you, and you know how my wife feels about you. Oh yeah, she hates me. Yeah. So, but, well, yeah. not only that, there was only so many potato chips. To go. <laughs> I mean, you would have been. It would have been fun, but that would have shorted the actual chip uh, intake. You know, well, not that I wouldn't have shared. But so you were cool <laughs> about it. you were sharing, but at one point you had the you, you had. Three bags All of them down you. by me. I, <laughs> I thought about that. I thought, Jesus, Clark, what kind of a guest you are you? You didn't think about it. What was great? You're like, hey, bro, you better get some of these. Like, like you were like, you were, and then like and they were all empty this morning. We, and I was eating them. I was fine. Don't, I mean, you don't have to worry about me. All right. But you were, you were so kind. You were just like, hey, bro. Well, I realized I was not going to stop. I was unable to stop eating these chips. And I thought, I better say something because I'm going for it. Yeah, you, you were know? going for it. And so was oh. I. I ate most of the, and the chip tastes good with the chocolate covered pretzel. So it was like a nice combination. And then the cold Heineken. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had them out on the, I left them outside. It was, what, 30 degrees last night? Yeah. So 
<laughs> well, it sounds lovely, but I, th- I think it's better that I, I got to go home after the show last night. And because, like I said, I was like starstruck. So, like, if I if if I didn't, you know, we did the the radio interview a while back. But if I didn't meet you in person last night and I just came in today to talk to you, I probably would have been still starstruck and been like <laughs> stammering through this interview. <laughs> well, man, if you had been here and heard the stories that I told you'd never want to speak to me again in life. So oh, there's okay. always that. You'd oh, be good. like, oh, I can't be starstruck. This guy's like, <laughs> he's evil. He's, you know, oh my God. You yeah, know, it was great yesterday. During the master class, you were, you were talking to the students and about technique about, and you were, you were all the, you were all, and then we go in the green room, that conversation changed immediately. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were, uh, that was fun. Uh, yeah, but the list of things we were talking about, I was like, oh, you should have shared this, you know, the intimate information about uh, Lee Morgan and some other things with the, that the students should hear that. But it was it was really funny. As soon as the door shut, it's not like you made a decision. It was just that's what we start talking. That's about. where it went. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and the same when the whole band came in there later too. Yeah, yeah. the whole thing shifted into another gear immediately. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you're you're so much fun to talk to. I hate to bring it back to a nerdy thing, but we still got we still yeah, have we a have decent amount of time. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah um, got about 25 Let's minutes. Let's nerd out. Let's um, nerd. Well, you know, one of the things we touched on in the radio interview we did and that you touched on in the master class last night is that part of where you got your linear funk playing is transcribing great, um, you know, great drummer solos such as like Elvin Jones, taking their licks and putting them over a backbeat. Um, which, and you know, I love the funky stuff. I love hearing about where that came from, but you know, I know how much of a nerd you are for the bebop and the swing. And I'm wondering if, is there any stuff that you took from other genres on like the funk side or the Latin side and that you were able to put on top of your swing playing and innovate in a way in like the opposite direction? I think I invented the funk drumming and jazz drumming. Uh, and jazz itself, you know. I, yeah, it pretty much sums it up. So let's move on. No, um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, it, blood sugar attack there. I, Just put one chapter in the jazz history yeah, book. Uh, yeah, 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 if you will. Uh, maybe you better leave that last statement, edit that one out. It's not quite. Um, okay. Um, Melvin Parker. Uh, Clayton Filia, Clyde Stubblefield, and Chavo Stark. And probably a couple of guys I don't even know their name. These are all drummers, the great drummers from James Brown that shaped everything that all of us do, That whether you dabble in funk or whether you're a funketeer. Maybe m- not just drummers. Those rhythms turned everybody on. I remember the first time I heard popcorn, I had to pull the car over. I thought I was going to have an accident. You had to smash into somebody. It was just too much for me to take. And so I am heavily influenced by those guys. Um, And it's not like I learned what they did. I I took the germ. I took what I heard, what I thought they did, and did my version of something like that, you know? That's on the funk side. And then I had played a lot of blues. So Sonny Freeman, the great drummer, with I tried to fashion my shuffle something like his. It's different, but his was kind of the, you know. Um, my father listened to Winoni Harris and uh, uh, 
Louis Prima and um, uh, Louis Jordan. So all of that drumming, I guess uh, Louis Jordan, that was probably C- Chris Colombo, Sonny Payne's dad playing drums on there. I and, didn't. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, um, and not just the drumming, the music, the sound of the band, the way the whole thing went. And then the jazz drummers, Gene Grupa, uh, Zudi Singleton. My mother really liked the drumming of Zudi Singleton. So we, we had Zudi Singleton records. Almost nobody has those. I don't know where she even found them. 78s in, uh, on the old turntable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonny Payne. Oh, gee, Sam Woodyard, of course. Uh, this is all before the, I'm not even mentioning the Beboppers yet. Um, Belson, Louis Belson, uh, Buddy Rich, Krupa, um, uh, Ray McKinley. Uh, there was a guy, uh, Ray McKinley was involved with uh, uh a boogie woogie kind of situation with Freddie Slack and some of these guys, and they play some knockdown, drag out boogie that would bring you to your knees. It was so funky, man. Beat me, daddy, eight to the bar, down the road a piece. The celery stocks at midnight, and I listened to all this as a child, and it, my brain, it's, it's still right there. And uh, and then of course, Roy Haynes, Philly Joe, Max Roach, and then later Elvin. Tony Williams, Jack, Lenny, whoever. Um, So, but what I did on the funky thing was I took little, I never transcribed anybody solo. It's very hard for me to do that. I I mean, I tried to do it once and it was just, my brain couldn't do it. It would take me too long. I mean, so, like, the great drummer Butch Miles said to me one time, I don't know Butch very well, but one thing he said to me was, well, in those days, we all would listen to our records and you just try to do something like what you heard the guy doing. So that's why guys from my age group have our own unique sticking and we we don't sound like other guys because it's us trying to sound like about 10 or 12 of those guys rolled into one guy and then your own... Uh, uh, point of view but I took little bits of the mechanics of what I heard Philly Joe do some things I know they that I, I that they actually played some phrases Elvin Tony and I put them on the hi-hat instead of blasting them all over the kit I put it I did the same I slowed it down instead of speeded it up and uh, put it on the hi-hat I voiced it on different parts of the instrument, hi-hat, tom here, bass drum there. And instead of using coordinated independence like you do in jazz, one hand and feet working against the ride pattern, I struck it at different time, like one at a time, two at a time on a different part of the set. So it wasn't the independence that we were all taught that was so important, except, I, I mean, I definitely have some serious independence because I shed it all that stuff as a child but then I broke that rule and started striking two notes on the hi-hat one on the bass drum a note or two here or there 
and a backbeat wherever I wanted it, but still in in the time. Two and four are still in the you know right place, but you're not playing the two and four. You're playing everything but that. And that's what I came up with. I just started doing it. It was natural. I didn't even hardly think about it. I just kind of one day went, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Uh, I got an idea. And it just came out. And when Paul heard it, uh, there was an electric bass in the room sitting there, and he only played acoustic bass. We considered the electric bass a sin. <laughs> We're jazz cats. You can't even have that thing in here. Hide it in the garage so nobody knows we even have one of those. And uh, one day he went over and picked it up, took it out of the case, plugged it right into an amp, and told me, play that funky stuff that you do, that crazy upside-down funk. I'm like, okay. And and he used to screw around with an acoustic guitar and play flamingo guitar, his own homemade flamingo. So when he played the electric bass, he played just like what you hear on actual proof, like, I don't know if it was the same pattern or the same, but it was that thing. Boom, right out of the bass case, first thing he did. And the first thing I said was, uh, hey, man, if you're going to play like that, we need to call a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I don't want to say what he said to me. <laughs> you can You'll say, have hey, we've already uh, had to check the not safe for kids box on this. Yeah, you can feel free. <laughs> well, he mentioned the complexion of my skin, first of all, <laughs> and it was laced with MFs. Matt, Matt thinks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, so then I thought, okay, well, he feels pretty strongly about this, so I'm just going to go with it. And, that, and that's what happened. That's just how it started. And then we would come up with a million of these things, never in the rehearsal room, always right on the gig in front of a bunch of people where we could play with no net. There was no net. We weren't sure. We were doing fives and sevens. We didn't even know there were fives and sevens. Wow. We were just doing it. But we knew how to make it work out. Yeah. So, you know, because it was, if you were caught playing on the run one and three, you could be beaten. <laughs> so it had to work out, you know, or you would be like, you know, humiliated oh, you publicly. Mean, you mean not turning, turning it around. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. You know, you had to be real super cool about that or, or, Everybody in town would know about it. Hey, I heard Clark turn the beat around over at the showcase the other night. Did you hear about it? Yeah, I heard. Yeah. And then I'd lie. No, it was Paul. I didn't do it. Paul did it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, so your, you know, your funk style was, you know, obviously influenced by the, the, you know, older, you know, bebop players and swing uh, players that you listened to. But after you started studying funk and listening to guys like, uh, you know, Jabo and all that. Did that change the way you approached swinging? Like, is there anything you you can you recall just like approaching differently after hearing funk in a in just a straight jazz context? No, it didn't. It didn't leak into my jazz thing too much. But what I did think of right away that's supposed to be new now is playing the ride beat and playing the funky underlay with the left hand and bass drum underneath it. You know, play funk with one yeah, hand yeah, yeah. and jazz in the other. I've been doing that since 1968. And some guys are telling me, hey, I got this new idea. You're going to love it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's great, bro. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, even when you're like actual proof is so funky that and like 
I, I'm always like floored by how much space you like. I mean, Herbie's soloing is amazing, but the, all the space you and Paul fill on that track alone, it feels like a f- six piece band with just the two of you playing, like how big the sound is. And I mean, even though it's funky, you're still swinging over that track. I mean, did you feel like you had room to stretch and play the totally like a, a lot of that swing in the Headhunters? Well, only on that tune. Okay. And yeah, because uh, the rest of the time, uh, there was a. First of all, when you play with Herbie Hancock, he's a genius. And and uh, uh, when you play with that guy, he hears every breath you take and reacts to it. And when he doesn't react to it, that's a reaction too. So he's got you. And also, the stuff he's playing offers you all the room you need to do whatever you want to do or do nothing should you decide and 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 doing nothing sometimes can be huge you know and and like there's nothing he can't handle rhythmically uh there's nothing he can't it seems like there's nothing he can't handle i'm sure if there's something in his mind there's places where he's limited where he goes like oh i gotta you know break through here or there but for me, it's like I could play upside down and backwards and inside out, and even in another time signature and this and that and da 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 da. And man, the guy was—it wasn't—he he, could—it wasn't even—he'd be. It was like you hoped you weren't boring him. You, you know, I mean, like it wasn't a—he—he he played with Tony Williams, man, for years. That was his—that was his best friend, Tony. Mm. So he'd been there to the four, he'd been to the mountain and back a million times before he met me. So he could handle my stuff like that. I wasn't even, no problem. And plus he's very musical. So he, you're making music with this guy. Um, so you're living inside that collage with him and it's, uh, <clears throat> and every move counts. Now, also in the Headhunters, there were other guys who were like, Man, if you just play on two and four, we're all going to make a million. I'm like, you're not going to get a million. He's going to get the millions, not us. So you might as well go on Throw Down. No, man. And, and so I, there was pressure for me. So the other tracks on Thrust are fairly pedestrian. So actual proof was how, when I played like how I normally play. And so it wasn't unusual for me to play like that. But, but if you don't know me and you hear the records, like, wow, he's playing this good stuff on this track. And... Well, that's if you like it, I mean. And, and and on the other tracks, he's not. Well, there's a, there's a reason. There was pressure for me not to improvise on the other track. But actual proof is just the way I... If You you know, I was listening to Roy Haynes and all those guys. Now he sings, now he sobs right around that town time. Red Clay, all of the Tony and Miles. You know, I was listening to everything. George Benson, when he was just all of it. You know, the CTI stuff. So it was a natural thing for me. I would go there and always right there unless somebody told me not to. And so I was being asked not to, and I wasn't mad about it. I'd just be like, okay. I mean, I want to be in the band, and it's not going to work if I'm like, yo, man, you can't be telling me how to play. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. just, that's, it's nice to be able to say you told somebody that, but you're going to be out of a gig, you know. Yeah. You can't, you can't do that, you know. You could do it in your mind later when you're imagining you walked in the saloon with your six gun strapped on low, and uh, uh, everybody was afraid of you. And you, and uh, but that's not how it really goes. <laughs> so you got to deal with how it really goes. And me, I needed a gig. I didn't want to lose that one, so I went with it. Well, now, I, yeah. 
Well, I was just gonna say I can't believe you're calling the other tracks like pedestrian because to me, like the parts you came up with for for those other tracks are iconic. Like the beginning, like the start of Palm Grease. Yeah, that that beat is is I love that so much. And then like the percussion breakdowns and the head of Palm Grease and Butterfly, just the short like couple measures where you yeah, like all that stuff is, is so like. Well, that's me trying not to play. I'm still trying to be me, but I'm try like I'm not improvising a whole lot of stuff. So I tried to make the beat special. So now we're talking about uh, not an open improv. We're talking about beats and fills. And because I'm a jazz artist, I didn't think along the lines of beats and fills. It was like I'm thinking I want to be. I'm, I'm not thinking I want to play like Elvin Jones, and because I can't. But I'm thinking I want to do something like this as far as communicating throughout the piece. Yeah. But when you get into beats and fills, it doesn't mean it's less than or not as good as. It's just beats and fills is different than going in there and just playing how you feel. Yeah. No, I just you know? I love those parts just as much. It's yeah. also I'm so glad good. you do. For me, they're very painful, and I've gone through. <laughs> I, you know, I lived in a very small cave for th you know 13 years and without food or water barely and I, I i had to go out and hunt with no weapons and it's really just because of those beats and fills that you like and the people who like them i feel inflicted this on my life and it's not good and i'm impaired but thank you for liking it though and making my life <clears throat> you see what you did brad you see what you did oh man <laughs> oh my god so much uh, no, i'm really happy you liked it i had fun doing well, it i love I'm the good. swing and stuff too i'm just saying those parts are funky as, mm. as hell and i love it matt i'm sorry i cut you off before what else you, we're running no out idea. of time so we're, we're running out of time I mean, I mean, I, we got to get mike out the door on time yeah um yeah <laughs> uh i have a rent a car <laughs> i gotta get that sucker back <laughs> Oh, we got to put some air in your tires, too. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I was driving like this at last night. If it would be like this, and then pretty soon you're over here. And I'm trying to keep an eye on Matt, and I'm like, is that Matt? Oh, and then did you see that guy with the blinking lights going I thought that I thought that was you. I thought that was you, so I followed him for like 15 minutes. I said, how nice. He's put his flashers on. He's going slow because there's a kind of a light blizzard going on. And pretty soon I got up close, and I went, that's not Matt. You know, I, every you know, car that was coming I, up on it was not you and i was like okay i and i thought that was you for a minute but it was going very slow and i was oh. like this couldn't be mike going that slow no that was even even though i was nervous i wasn't i at least wanted to be a man and go 50. <laughs> this dude was 35 on the highway and i'm thinking it's matt because you know i can't quite see i'm staying i'm keeping it distance because it's yep. snowing and slippery yep you were keeping your distance, and I got in my driveway, and I just waited for you. I saw the lights. I was like, "Oh, he made it cool." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was all good. Yeah. Um, I, I'll just I, and 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 I know we got to go. So let's. Uh, I, all I was going to say earlier, if I think I think of, if I think I'm remembering correctly, was just the talk of Buddhism and the practice, and um, the idea. Of, it seems to me, uh, I've never I've never uh, practiced Buddhism, but I, I was I'm into uh, just breathing exercises and and this whole thing of pranayama which is just basically be, be bearing witness without judgment and it and it sounds like that's sort of what this zone you can kind of get into oh, yeah doing you're that. free from that yeah and yeah. it sounds like um when you're open to it the music that you make is just a reflection your relationships and the music that you're making is just a reflection of that 
not judging it and just seeing what happens, getting and putting energy into a room and see see what happens. And uh, yeah, it kind of makes you you know we only have so many life moments. Our, our life is made up of seconds and um and moments. Yeah. <laughs> and more moments and and uh, sorry yeah. uh, and so uh, um, if I didn't want to have to fight to not mar as much of that time space as I can with my own negativity. Yeah. That nobody's fault. It's not even a fault. It's just yin and yang. Or in the, we have this, you know. And so when I chant, it holds all that at bay and I can be present and accounted for, you yeah. know. Yeah. And then when it starts to wear off, I chant again. And then year after year of this chanting, you're coming up out of that muck, you know, and then you can close the hi-hat finally on the two and four, which I should have been doing all this time. And that's the... Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, did you have another question? Uh, well, uh, no, I mean, uh, I just wanted to, in, in wrapping it up, um, I mean, it's amazing hearing about all this. Um, I just want to shout out again. Stick People is, is such a fascinating thing that I hope the listeners check out. Um, it's a great podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Your new record with Michael Zilber, Mike Drop. Mike Drop. Thank you. Another another amazing piece of work. And uh, uh, Freedom Jazz Dance with Leon Lee Dorsey. I was oh, just yeah. checking that out. Um, so Manny amazing. Manny Valera, right? On, on, is that him on bass? No, that's Leon Dorsey on bass, but Manny's the piano player on Freedom Jazz Dance. Oh, Manny okay. Because that was my first time hearing uh, Leon. I thought, he was, I thought he was the piano player. I hadn't heard him before. Oh, yeah. No, he's the bassist. No, he's wonderful. And so is Manny. I mean, God, those were all first takes. Mm. You know, <laughs> I think they were all for. Well, I could be lying too. I listened <laughs> <You> to Mike. <laughs> yeah, I listened to Mike drop this week, and um, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering the whole time if you were present during the mixing part of that recording. Because what I love about it is where your ride symbol is. Like you could, it's. I fought for that. I did. Man, I'm listening. I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure you had something to do with how this went down because it's so beautiful. It's like my. I love that. It's what I love about uh, uh, the four and more. Any of those albums where you yeah. can, where that ride is right there, right there. Yeah, you, you can don't have feel to feel the tip of that. Uh, no, oh, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> it's right, just calm the down, tip. Matt. <laughs> but it, it's just, I'm listening to that record, and the playing is beautiful. Um, but I, as I'm listening, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you were in the in the room when that went down. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I don't know if that was for you like that but man I, I love hearing that and usually you don't always hear that on the record that, that the drummer is not present for the mix part not anymore some, someone some cared reason. about what you yeah, wanted and, and the ride symbol along with the bass is the foundation you know and so I, I the records I grew up on you didn't have to strain to hear the ride it was just right there and then during the 80s or something I think with the, you know you got a lot of guys engineers and producers that grew up on funk so the kick and the snare is tuned like a funk record and it's mixed like a funk record and the cymbal is like down mm. and i'm like wow it, it it never did sound right to me because i came up on the other thing you know yeah, and well your the mic drop sounds right to me cool. yeah thank you so congratulations on that thank um, you so much yeah i i like to listen to the uh to it as well um one of the few records that I made that I can listen to and not have to listen to what's going on and just have it going on in the background, it feels pretty good. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, congrats. That's a, a lot. That doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. I got yeah. plenty of records and I'm like, oh my God, turn that off. <laughs> oh my God, no. Yeah. That's not really me. It's another guy. They used my name. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Well, uh, we do really have to end it if we want to make that 1230 stop. Unless there's any records that are coming up, you just want to get people's attention on quick. Now, let's see. um, uh, Me and uh, um, if this... uh, We're scheduled to make a record soon with Michael Ladon on piano, the great Mike Ladon on piano, Leon, Lee Dorsey on bass, myself, a trio record. Wow. And we're going to... It's a jazz record, and we're going to do a lot of different blueses if you will we're gonna play blues and different ones and treat them different and do little arrangements and this that and the other but it's probably going to be mostly if not all blues minor blues 16 bar blues this kind of blues slow blues you know and uh you know let me know if you need a guitar player I will. That's a good idea. I, you know, yeah, I hear you. And you can really play the blues. It's in everything you do, man. I was loving it last night. I'm I was like, loving I, you last I, night. I go like, oh man, I get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, yeah. That's all those organ gigs you did, bro. Oh man, I love that. I, I mean, Woo. it's just, it's just joyful uh, to play with you, man. I, I love it. Thank and, you, you and, too. And thank you for hanging out with us extra long and doing this. It was a joy to hear you talk about well thank i'm honored to do this podcast and i'm honored that you invited me up and treated me so beautiful and 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 uh uh the whole thing was uh uh, already a great memory as a matter of fact i i want to stay i don't want to all right i love you guys out there if you can see me or hear me thank you so much for years of listening to my um drumming (laughs) i I wasn't sure what i was going to say there thanks for having me matt and thank you so much for once again um what's the name of this show again the mink and the monk because uh jerry z gave me my nickname of fat mink i know Monkel. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I'm not the monk. Monk is, I can't, <laughs> I've had people try to call me monk before. I'm like, no, <laughs> you oh. can't call me. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not yeah. worthy. Yeah. <laughs> there you have it. But yeah, the mink and the monk. And we have like, uh. I think we're at like four subscribers now. So man, this is going to go viral. <laughs> oh, that's, I didn't know it was that. It's heavy, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. that is heavy. It is that's, pretty that's heavy. Yeah. My stomach is growling. I don't want this on tape. <laughs> yeah, um, I think the pretzels and coffee hit me funny. My yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully we can do part two and part three of this. Down. I know I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I'm going to let you go. You got to get that rental back. Yeah. Um, we the one question we did get on Instagram was uh, someone said I I just want to hear him talk about Tony Williams I think we got a little bit of that and we can always do more for three minute Tony Williams let's do it okay here's Brad's my, famous for his three minutes so let's hear yours all right I'm I'm gonna try to get to it uh, okay let's think let me see if I can make my brain engaged Tony Williams genius innovator uh, impeccable technique but not technique just to have technique he used it for the some of the, if not the deepest phrases, where he puts it, where he doesn't put it, his own personal swing that no, that everybody copies and nobody sounds like, um, the hi-hat thing, uh, four to the bar that got so popular for a while, um, all that fire he brought to my, oh my goodness, um, 
maybe we won't hear anything like that, an innovator like that for another 200 years. Or, I mean, I can't even find the words. So he, he affected me so deeply. I don't play his stuff. Yeah, I can't. I mean, and why? You know, why would I want it? You know, he he did it. He did it. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, I mean, we all play a little bit of everybody's stuff. You got to play some Tony. Some, I mean, some of that stuff you can't help but play, depending on the tempo. But man, uh, one of the greatest ever. How's that? That's perfect. Okay. Sorry, sorry to throw that in at the end there. I forgot to check on that. I don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. amazing. Thanks, Thank guys. you. Thank, Thank you for you. doing it. All right. The mink in the mug. <laughs> Thank you.